Yeah, the message today is on leadership. There's a few things going on. I want to draw your attention to um, this thing we're going to do. It's September 17th. We call it Crash Course Calvary. There's information, I think, on the email and the slides here. And what we tr- have tried to do over the last year or so is that when people are trying out churches, moving churches, um, they have lots of questions. And what we try to do is just over these three Sundays before the service, we just try to tell you everything you might want to know about a church in order to make an informed decision about if you want to invest your time in here. We don't want you to be at Calvary for two years and then find out something about how we do things that's important to us that you can't stand, and then you need to uh, be upset about it. We just want to get all the details out there as quickly as possible, and then you can make your informed decision. So the first Sunday we do... um, Essentially, I just try to run through every kind of spectrum of church there is, everything you could disagree about, everything, you know, um, you know, Holy Spirit, not Holy Spirit, Bible, um, men, women, uh, predestination, no destination, all that stuff, you know, what happens to you after you die. And we just try to let you know kind of where we are on the spectrums, as well as which topics are core to our belief and which ones we're kind of generous. And there's lots of different ideas, but we still find a way to do church together. And then we have one on what it means to be a relational church, which is a core value for us, and what it means to be a charismatic church, which is also a core value for us. And hopefully by the time we're done, um, you know what you're in for. And then I get to do that joke where I say, hey, you chose to come here, not my fault, your fault, whenever something strange happens. So that's number one. The second thing is, um, if you were with us last Sunday, I, I, we are calling us to prayer about church leadership. Um, Vince, who was our community pastor for about a year, has is moving on to YFC Blumenort, and it's a wonderful thing, and he has my wholehearted joyful support and it's amazing and I'm all for it, but it leaves us in a bit of a different situation than we were hoping to be in. And We've grown a lot again and again, and so we're wanting to seek the Lord for his priorities and his plans about how to respond. So not only do we have some staffing questions, but we could probably use at least two more, maybe three more elder couples as governmental people on the church. It's kind of how we run. We have elder couples that take care of the government, and then we have staff that do the work, and then we have some hybrid models that have a foot in each world. But there's just a lot of um, kind of need. And so before we just decide to do stuff and try to convince you it's a good idea, we like to call the whole church to spend some time seeking the Lord, asking for input, asking him to communicate. And I even said last week, hey, don't even talk to the elders about this yet. You just keep processing with the Lord. And we'll say, why don't we just say September 1st is a good time where you can start sending your emails to Rob at the Calvary website, or, or probably better, Greg. Yeah, send them to Greg. Um, just kidding. Or whoever you're comfortable talking. If you'd rather talk with Michelle, if you'd rather talk with Jackie, they can be good people as well. Just what you're sensing. And when we do this, it's really surprising how perspectives can kind of come together that we then, what we do as leaders, we present it at a certain time back to the church, and then we seek for that sense of, yeah, this is the Lord as we come together. And often there's good surprises. So this is where we're at. 
Um, so please pray. Please be seeking the Lord. Please be sensitive to him using you to help communicate on behalf of the body. And as we process well, I'm sure God will help us. But it seemed wise to me that we would have some kind of message on leadership. And uh, I, I'm going to smile to myself the whole way through this because I'm not the right guy to do this, but whatever, I'm who you've got. And, uh, but let's just start with a story. So there was this Chinese general from way back in the day. His name was Sun Tzu. Has anybody heard of him before? He wrote this book called The Art of War that we kind of discovered in the West maybe 50 years ago um, about how to do actual battles, and it got um, absorbed into American business culture. It's like you read Sun Tzu's Art of War, and then it will help you destroy your enemies in the business world kind of thing. Anyhow, they tell the story about how Sun Tzu got one of his biggest jobs. And he had written this manual on how to do battle, and one of the local warlords or leaders heard about it and invited him to come, and they would talk about how to do it. And so this warlord wanted to give Sun Tzu a challenge. And he said, can I give you a group of people, and I want you to kind of use your skills to build a small uh, army or a brigade or something, a unit. He said, sure. And so he said, and would you be willing to use the women of the palace for this? You know, this is a bit of a challenge. Back then, it wasn't normal to do this thing. Yeah, no problem, he says. So he, he gets, um, I think it was, the legend has it, about a hundred women of this warlord's palace. And amongst them were some of his concubines, so his not royal wives, wives that children would not be heirs, but his... So he obviously had some kind of harem. So this is back then when people did it like that, openly, not secretly like they do it today. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, two of this warlord's concubines were put in charge. Each of them got half of these ladies to become Sun Tzu's little army. And so Sun Tzu began the training, and he said, okay, this is how it's going to go. When I say forward, you move forward. When I say left, you turn left. When I say right, you turn right. When I say about face, you turn all the way around, 180. And I want you to stand like this and this. And he gave his instructions, and then he said, okay, now it's time to do it. Turn left. And all the ladies just started giggling. And so he said, okay, well, when instructions are given and they're not carried out, you assume first that maybe the leader is the problem and he didn't give the instructions clearly. So we'll try this again. When I say face forward, you face forward. When I say left, you all turn left. When I say right, you all turn right. When I say about face, you all turn 180 degrees. Got it? They say, yes, we've got it. The concubines, yes, got it, got it. Okay. So he does it again. Now it's time. Time to turn left. And he says they turn left and they didn't turn left. They all just started to giggle. And so he says, okay, these two concubines that are in charge of all these troops, we're going to cut your head off. Because if I've clearly communicated, but now you're not obeying, then, pro- then obviously you're the problem, not me. So. And then the warlord said, oh, hey, whoa, hey, watch out here. Uh, you know, I've heard that you're going to cut off the heads of a couple of my concubines. And uh, if you do this, I'm not going to be super happy about it. So enough with the demonstration. Thanks, you've done fine. To which Sun Tzu replied, Well, once a general has been given a charge from the leader, it is his job to follow through with that charge, even if the leader doesn't always like it. So he rejected the micromanagement and had these two ladies' heads cut off. And then he went back to the group and said, okay, now, we're going to do this. Forward, left, right, about face. Everyone turned left. And you know what happened? Everyone turned left. And then when he said everyone turned right, they all turned right. And whenever he said about face, they all turned about face. And that's how Sun Tzu got his first job. He presented the warlord with um, a house full of women who were 
great soldiers, and then went on to win a number of battles himself. So I'm going to need two volunteers. (laughs) Yeah, and then you think about it, that's awkward. (laughs) Leadership. Leadership styles. How to get something done. Obviously not a kind of leadership culture that you could enact in a church, but quite effective in compelling people to become soldiers. So we're going to read a story from the Bible about Jesus. We go to the Bible because this is God's book. He superintended to make sure the Bible turned out just the way he wanted to so that he could say to people, this is my word to you. When you read it, you're hearing my communication from you, and you can trust it. In a world full of things you can't trust, you can trust this book. The whole Bible, both Old and New Testament, are about a person named Jesus. And so we're going to read some of the stories about him, and he's going to be doing some leadership lessons for us. And I'm hoping, you know, I'm just processing through this stuff. This is a bit about me. This is a bit about you. This is a bit about all of us. But why don't we read a story together and just see what Jesus has to say about leadership and government and stuff like that. All right, so this is near the end of Jesus' life. It's approaching Holy Week. And uh, so it says this, Matthew 20, starting verse 17. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Next story. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him. So the sons of Zebedee are two of the disciples. Came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, See that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So these would be places of honor. In uh, Old Testament times, they would know that there was a king and he got the big throne, but on his left and his right would be these places of exalted honor as um, advisors and elevated people in the kingdom. 22, Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, so this is all the other disciples who aren't sons of Zebedee, they were indignant. So indignant means a a mixture between bitter and angry at the same time. Offended and angry. Yeah, that's right. Bitter, offended, and angry. And they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
All right. So we're talking about leadership. And one of the first things I need to say is like, though some of us may never get a title that makes us feel like we're a leader, um, we are all leaders in some sense as human beings. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, when God's making everything, he, he introduces people to us, if I can put it like that, as leaders. So I'll read it for you. This is the first chapter of the Bible where God's just making everything. And you know, on that sixth day, at the, the high point of creation, the last thing he makes before he takes his big Sabbath rest, he says this, this is verse 26, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, so they were specifically made to be extra like God, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that's on the earth. So everything I just made is going to have a boss. And that boss is going to be something I make that's going to be extra like me, to represent me to my creation and to rule over it on my behalf. Verse 27. So God created man in his image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. And we can stop there. So when God is starting his story and telling the story to us, when we're introduced to us in the story, we're introduced as a male and a female with a job to be leaders over God's creation. That's like the first thing we're told about. Our purpose and our existence and our mission. As Corinne was saying, are you on track with the mission? The, The whole point we're here is to lead the creation on God's behalf, for its good, in the worship of God. The world needs us. And we're here to be leaders in the world, to have dominion, to make things better wherever you go. If you, do you want to know the purpose of life? And it's in a broken world, and everything's messy, and everything's hard, but the purpose of your life is to make the world a better place as you walk with the living God. And it's all some kind of holding dominion. And when we talk about leadership, it's often just like a subset of that having a dominion and ruling job we've been given, which usually means being a focal point for human effort in some way. Where people unite their effort in a specific direction to kind of accomplish something. Whether it's war or politics or teaching or building stuff. The leader is usually the person that is helping lots of people's energy go in a specific direction to try to accomplish something. But if you're a human being, you are called to rule. You're called to impact, influence, and change things for the better of God's kingdom on the earth. No exceptions. We can abdicate our responsibility and let things get worse. But we can't not be who we are. We were meant to lead, to hold dominion, and to rule. And there's all different kinds of ways to do it. One of the things that makes me like just think about this, and this is just Rob being weird, is like fruit trees. 
and how often fruit trees actually are more fruitful when people are cutting off unhelpful branches. The whole act of, of pruning for fruitfulness is so weird. Why would an apple tree evolve over millions of years to need me to help it be fruitful? Weird? How come plants do better with our help? That that doesn't make any sense unless that's how the universe works. And I'm sure someone can write a big book trying to make that not true. But how come apple trees do better when I pull off a bunch of the apples, you get better apples? When you thin things out, when you put... Why? Why? Because the universe is full of potential that will not be realized unless we, as God's representatives, act to make things better. It's a crazy world. And it needs us. It needs us to walk with God and be good and not be the problem. But as we all know, the first parents decided, I don't want to serve God, I want to be God, and then we became the worst thing that ever happened to creation. Ah! But I'm just trying to say, like, even... Even if you never get paid by a church, you're still a leader because that's what you exist for. And if you can pray and you can trust Jesus and you can obey, you can make the world a better place because that's why he made you. That's why you were conceived. That's why you exist. And so it's not our job to become discouraged and full of despair and quit on everything and just try to bury ourselves in whatever pleasurable chemical we can either ingest or make happen in our brain. We're not here just to be selfish (laughs) and pleasure-seeking and then quit. We're here to make the world a better place with God. Amen? Okay, that was not totally in the notes, but I think especially young people, our culture wants to so convince you that it's already over and it's already done and it's already too hot and too cold and we're all going to die and we're all going to die and we're all going to die and so just give your whole lives over to other people so they can abuse you and then we're all going to die and you know what, we're all going to be here 50 years from now still. And you'll have lost your lives believing people who tell you you can't do anything good anyways. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Do not become slaves to people who just want to abuse you for their own power because you're discouraged. When if you can pray and if you can trust Jesus, you can make the world a better place. Because that's why you exist. And it's going to hurt and it's going to be hard. But yeah, that's what we're about to talk about. So here we have this story about Jesus. And Jesus is trying to do um, revelation management in his disciples. I don't even know what else to call it. 
as I'm reading the Gospels, one of the things I'm realizing is that Jesus, every single interaction he had with people, he had truths to tell them that they could not bear to hear. Because we're like that. We're so emotionally invested in things that aren't true that when someone tells us the truth, we want to kill them. Right? We have this small range of things we're willing to hear feedback from people about. The things that we already think we're already doing okay and we might become awesome. So yes, you can, you know, yes, you can. When I have a strength that might get stronger, yes, I can get feedback. But there are things about our character and our lives that if you try to touch, it's going to go bad. And everywhere Jesus went, (laughs) even his best friends had stuff they could not hear him say to them. And so he's trying to baby step them into reality, baby step them into reality, baby step them into reality. So he calls them to follow him. And they're like, I got to follow you, but I don't even totally know who you are. And he's working miracles and he's teaching. And at some point he goes to his disciples and say, hey, who, who do people say I am? And one person says this thing, and another person says this thing, and then Peter finally says, hey, wait, are you, are you, you're the Messiah. And Jesus is so flabbergasted, not flabbergasted, but he's like, hey, you know what? It's not people who taught you this. You were taught this by the Father because nobody knows who I am. But then the next thing he started doing, he's saying, now, you, now that you've confessed the truth, I don't even know if Jesus ever said he was the Messiah in his life, but now that you've confessed the truth, you need to learn something. I have not come to rule and reign the way you think I was supposed to. I've come to suffer. And he begins to tell them, trying to tell them, the Messiah is going to get killed, guys. And Peter's like, shut up, this can't happen to you. And he's, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand anything God's doing. And they're having fights about what it means to be the Messiah because Peter's got one idea, Glory! And Jesus has another idea, glory. And Peter cannot accept what's going on. And so here we are again. Jesus is leading to Jerusalem where everybody thinks this is going to be the best street party ever as Jesus ascends into the throne. And Jesus is trying to tell them again, it's not going to go how like you think. It's not going to go like how you think. It's not going to go like how you think. And the very next thing we read about right after Jesus tells his disciples he's going to get crucified is the sons of Zebedee getting their mom to ask him if they can sit beside his throne. Do you see what I'm trying to wrestle with here? how they did not even begin to understand a little bit what Jesus was trying to tell them. If Jesus, like Jesus, hey guys, I'm, I'm gonna go get killed. It's gonna be absolutely horrible for me. It is going to be the pinnacle of Roman torture devices used against me over an extended period of time and then I'm going to die. And their response is like, so when you're winning, can I be really close to your winning so that I can look like I'm winning too? Guys, the fear of God that goes through me when I realize how close to God you can be and not understand anything. And to plead, don't let me continue to be this dense, Jesus. I mean it. I assume I'm dense. But would you please open my eyes? 
so that I won't be the worst part of your day, Jesus. And you tell me I'm about to be destroyed, and I go, how can I turn that to my personal advantage? So there's this huge misunderstanding going on here. And you can just see Jesus just trying to like work with them. He, what he knows is real and what they think is real. Can we sit at your right hand and your left? They're thinking thrones. He's like, can you even drink my cup? He's thinking the cup of God's wrath coming upon him as he dies in the place of sinners in order to rescue them from, from the torment of being rejected by God. They say to him, yes, we can drink your cup. And they're thinking like the, like the, the gray cup. What are they, what's the hockey one again? The Stanley Cup. Can you drink from my Stanley Cup? Put the bubbly in there. La, 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 la. There you go. I want to drink from that cup. He's thinking the cup of torture. They're thinking the cup of triumph. And they're like, yes, we're going to. And then he thinks, yeah, you guys are going to drink because he knows they are all going to be martyred for him at some point. Yeah, you're going to drink, guys. But it's not even my job. I don't get to decide who's at my right and my left because he's not thinking the right and the left as sitting on his throne. He's thinking, when I enter my kingdom through crucifixion, there is going to be someone at my right and there is going to be someone at my left, but they're already in prison because God's chosen them for that. So you've already missed the boat because you haven't been arrested yet, guys. You haven't already been condemned to death, so I can't even put you in that place because they're already in prison waiting for their execution. So there's this just gigantic misunderstanding going on. And it makes me feel very insecure that I totally understand what church leadership is all about. Is that okay if I do that? So next part of the story. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. And it's funny, they don't explain why they're mad, but how much you want to bet it's because they feel ripped off that they didn't think of it. Right? They're going, how could you guys do that? You know, sneak in there. You guys snake that parking lot, that, that parking spot right, right along the church thing there. And I was going to come there. And right when I was doing it, you know, I was praying hard and I was driving slow. I was worried about pedestrians. And then you got in there right before me. You are an unthoughtful driver for taking what I wanted. I don't know that for a fact. But from what I know about human hearts, why would you even be angry about this? Unless it's just like the Tenth Commandment being obliterated. Thou shalt not covet your brother's position seeking. And it's so, and I've got my own stories about where God has like played games with this part of my heart. Because there is something in the human heart where we want to be elevated and we want to be higher up and we want to have titles and positions and things happen that make us feel like we aren't a wastrel and we aren't a loser and we aren't a nobody and we like it when people think highly of us and we want the victory and we want the success and we want these things. And when other people appear to be getting things that we want where we feel like there's a a limited quantity of it, we can fight over it. True? 
So can I share a little bit of my, like, coming into church leadership story? Just to lighten up the mood a little bit. So I ended up going to Regent College out of university because I just was really excited about studying the Bible. And that's, I had some friends going there, and that's where we wanted to go. Jackie and I had visited there on our, on our honeymoon. That's right. And we went to the bookstore at Regent, and I just had, there were some teachers there that I really wanted to study with, and I didn't realize that they'd both retired before I got there, and so that was just a big swing and a miss for me. But it was um, still a good school, and so I was going to Regent College, and we were staying in a, in a underground suite, and I would walk to school praying about what we were going to do afterwards, or what I was going to do, and I would just say, Lord, I just don't want to be a pastor. I'll do anything for you. I'll teach. That's all I can think of, but I don't want to be a pastor. So it's one of those conversations where you let God know there's only one thing he can do. And uh, we visited there a number of years ago, about five years ago. We went for a trip and visited there with the whole family before we got Timmy. And I showed the kids, this is the spot where I told God I didn't want to be a pastor. And we all just had a big laugh because obviously something. We all know what God thought about that. And I realized, looking back, that I had just such a terror of public failure, of uh, failing people, of sinning against people in a public way. And I just, that the pain I feel when I feel like I've failed publicly, so intense, I just didn't want to be in a position to have to face that ever. And I saw that that was the heart of it, and not really faith. So I was on the no side, but then when we moved to Steinbeck and um, for some reason, they let me speak here every once in a while. I kind of enjoyed this speaking part. I like fellowshipping with God and sermon prep. I like fellowshipping with God while I'm talking about his word. I really like you guys. And so some, something was coming up in my heart there a little bit. And I think that I might have been in a super long-term eldership process of testing to see whether I might become an elder. And I remember somewhere along that point, um, the other guys were talking about adding someone to the staff. It was uh, Andrew at the time and Dave were on full time and they were talking about it. And there's something happened where I was like, and so I met with Andrew one time. It was in the nursery, if you remember the old building, anybody. We're sitting in the nursery and Andrew says, well, what do you think about this whole staffing thing? Because Andrew was great. He always asked the great questions. And I said, you know, I think I could be up for it. And Andrew was just like, yeah, we're thinking about Greg. (laughs) It was so good. It was so good. It was so good. And I just needed that. So good. Just Andrew, super loving, but, you know, um, just like, yeah, we're just, 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 doing the business sometimes. And uh, he's just, yeah, we're thinking about Greg. You know, he's got these skills and these skills and these skills that we need help. And it was like, okay, great. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, it was so funny. So anyhow, we're in the eldership process, and it's taken a really long time for, for multiple reasons. And this is how we were doing it, where we have at least a year of just somebody joining the elders and be, being uh, serving in the church and just being together to see if it was like a fit, where you loved each other and you liked being together and, and building with relationship and not making it a big like church thing where people are judging and evaluating and whatever. There's strengths and weaknesses for everything. And so after the year of eldership, I was like, yeah, I'm ready to do this. I started chomping at the bit. Like, I want the hands laid on, and I want to get in the sand. I want to do, 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 do. And, uh, and so I'm starting to feel more pumped to be in this role and get this title and stuff. And I remember Andrew and Jackie and I were driving someplace, and Andrew asked Jackie, so how, do you think Rob's ready to become an elder? And Jackie's like, no way. <laughs> do you remember that? 
She's like, there's this thing, and there's this thing, and there's this thing, and he's not ready. And I was in the car with them while they're talking. You are a woman I can trust. I do love that about you. I never have to wonder, and I love that about you. Because when you say good things, I know they're good things too. And so it went on for like another year. You know, behind the scenes, without the stuff. And And it eventually came on, Greg and I came on staff at the same time, and I became an elder the same day, became a pastor, and blah, 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 blah. But just this journey of wanting and then not getting and then not wanting and then seeing like you have to do it and all this like the emotions and the the pride and the shame and the ups and the downs with all this stuff and just knowing that if I were one of the ten I would have hated the sons of Zebedee because of the insecurity I would have felt about the idea that somehow they might be elevated above me when I've been doing all this stuff for all this time like, I see myself in there. Anybody else? No, you nobody ever? But don't nod. This is on camera. Don't nod. So easy to be. And again, again, Jesus knowing that the, the call of the apostles is to suffer and die for Christ and then being so cheesed at the idea of somebody else dying for Christ. They just, the, the misunderstanding. And so here we come with Jesus trying to, just loving them. And can, you, can we just take a pause and just think about the gentleness and kindness of Jesus with these people when they just don't have a clue of a clue? And he's still just being their master and loving them and talking with them and not reducing them to ashes with lightning bolts right in front of him, which he could have. And some of us might have. But his just tenderness and working with them. Um, the thing I like most about coming back from the sabbatical is just spending time seeing that Jesus is the hero of the heroes. He's the best person ever. His character is amazing. I love how he handles everything. I just want to be near him. He is so good. And I read this story, and I don't even want to give a leadership lesson. I just want to say, can you see how Jesus is the person you want? Because even while these guys are absolutely blowing it, he is still the best thing that ever happened to them. Get Jesus. He's the best thing that can ever happen to anybody. And when you get Jesus, you get him forever. So he, he talks to them. And he invites them to have a lifestyle of evaluating how the world does leadership and then rejecting everything that doesn't line up with the cross. You see that? He doesn't just say, hey, serve like I do. He says, you know, you are well aware how kings act and how Pharisees act and how high priests act and how generals act. You're well aware of the Gentiles and their motivations and their actions for leadership and authority. 
They want to be high. They want to be elevated. They want to be seen. They want to be glorified. They like to tell people what to do with their lives and punish them for their lack of obedience and take all the glory when anything good happens. You guys can see with your living eyes. It's all over Twitter every day. You can see it. It shall not be so amongst you. Whoever would be great amongst you must be a servant. And I, I appreciate this next line, 27. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Because often the translators back off of the slave world because of, word because of uh, the history of the last three or 500 years or whatever it is. And the fact that there were slaves and we're trying to repent of that. And we're all very sensitive to it. Um, but I, I'm not sure it's actually helpful in understanding Jesus. Because we probably should be as offended as if Jesus is saying, if you want to be the best person ever, why don't you go sell yourself onto a plantation, pre-Civil War plantation? Why don't you get that low, that nothingness, that not in control, that forgotten, that uh, vulnerable to mistreatment? If you want to be great, because... Jesus came down from heaven. He is the creator God. He has spent eternity past being worshipped in the throne room by all the faithful angels. And he came down not to be served, but to be the slave. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And just the catastrophic humility of Christ. His lowliness ruins everything for us. To be in a world where someone could be that humble wrecks everything. Thus he has to die. Thus he has to die. To be in the presence of someone who is so great but rejects it just to glorify God and to love the nobodies, thus he has to die because he exposes the whole game. He exposes the whole game. He exposes the whole sham. We're all naked. We're all ashamed. You want to know what you know about everybody you meet? They're ashamed. They're ashamed of their failures. They're ashamed of their weaknesses. They're so afraid someone's going to find out what they're really like. And when someone comes along who does not play the game, and so he says to all of us today, hey, don't play the game. You don't need to play the game. Jesus went to the cross. He absorbed every kind of shame, every kind of ridicule. His best friends abandoned him. All his enemies got to make fun of him. He died, and then he came back. He wrecked the game. The game's wrecked. 
The game's broke. It's like one of those old Nintendo entertainment systems where you can press the thing up and down and blow in the cartridge however much you want, but when you turn that on, it's just going to go white screen, black screen, white screen, black screen, white screen, black. The game is broken. And there's a bunch of people who don't know it yet, but the game is broken. And so we get to be who we were meant to be. We get to just be these humble, wonderful little creations that are made in God's image that get to make the world a better place and know no matter what happens, just knowing God is the best. Just having Jesus is the best. So there's a couple practical thoughts for us. From smaller to bigger, number one, do you want to get out of the game? Just practice being a learner no matter what. There's something in our hearts where we think, like, once I've learned a certain amount, then I get to be boss. Anybody? And I guess sometimes it works. Sometimes it's better if the coach knows basketball better than the people they're coaching. That doesn't hurt. When I went to Regents, there was a part of my heart that wanted to learn Greek and Hebrew so that I could stand in front of people and make them have to listen to me because I knew more than they did. And I saw it coming out because I had these two best friends there, Jed and Patrick, and we were all in the same Greek and Hebrew classes, and every time there was a test, I was so worried that they did better than me. And so relieved when I did better than them. Even though it wasn't a fair fight. I was only taking three courses. Some of them were taking five. They were just way busier. It wasn't a fair fight. And I just kept seeing this thing in my heart, like, why am I happy when they don't do as well? And I felt like God really just said, like, Rob, you're so insecure, and you're looking for a degree to make you worth listening to. And I was just like, okay, God, you're right. I'm ready to leave. You're about a, a year and a half in. And I was just like, just tell me to go. And I, and I think often what God does is, hey, once you see the problem, then I can use you. Amen. We're so afraid of seeing the problem. And Jesus is like, no, once you see the problem, that's when the good stuff can happen. Because then we can work on it. And you're not running away and doing the la, 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 la. You can't tell me about my selfish Hebrew marks. La, 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 la. I'm serving you. I'm serving you. I'm here to serve you. Don't criticize me. I'm here to serve you. No, once we see our brokenness, our sinfulness, when we bring it to Jesus and share it with others, then Jesus can really make things great. So just keep learning. Keep learning about yourself. Keep learning about life. Keep learning about your callings. Keep learning about your kids. Keep learning about your husband. Keep learning about your wife. One of the best parts of sabbatical is I get you way more than when we started. I understand how you work way better. And I love it. And the more we just keep trying to learn about ourselves, the less we... This. We're just trying to learn and then love. So just keep learning. That keeps you humble. Uh, number two, practice rejoicing in others' growth. I've shared this before, but something that really changed in my whole time here at Calvary was when we brought Taylor on staff, and it dawned on me that this whole, like, the next generation coming into faith, it can actually work. Young people can actually serve the Lord. Because I was the young people for a while, and now more young people, and I was like, I was like, Anakin Skywalker, it's working, it's working. <laughs> Sorry, being the kids in Star Wars, some of you get what I'm talking about here. This real, hey, this can work. And it totally shifted, like, this is not about 
me trying to figure out if I can be a leader, it's like, if I can help other people do amazing in Jesus, this is the best life ever. And it turns out then you're being a servant. And you're out of the game. Uh, Work through your leader sins. In every place where you have any kind of responsibility, your heart will tend to want to sin in it. Whether it's becoming too elevated or too unelevated. To, to get too aggressive or to be too passive. You can be proud this way. You can be proud that way. And one of the great ways to be a servant when you have a responsibility is to just be, be more aware of your junk than the people who come to complain about you because of your junk. Don't ever be surprised when someone has a criticism of you. Do you know what I mean? And then you can, it can be unifying. Rob, you're awkward. I know! You see that too? We have so much in common. We're going to be great friends. And I'm saying it kind of funny, but um, God does not let any leader, and we're all leaders, get very far without letting us experience real pain because of our character. Uh, Peter failed. Paul was killing Christians before he got assembled. Moses struck the rock. Aaron made the calf. Miriam had a, Miriam had a leadership fight with Moses and got struck with leprosy. We all have our junk. And the option of being a great leader, a perfect leader, is not on the table for us. All we can do is be like really humble about our weaknesses. And by doing that, we're actually serving well. Uh, work through your leader hurts. By the way, when you're in a world where God doesn't let anybody be a perfect leader, it does mean that eventually you're going to be deeply wounded by someone who felt like or feels like a leader to you. And so much of how your life is going to go is how you respond to that. And I do think, can I just be awkward again? I'm not totally convinced everyone's here because Calvary's so great or I'm so great. I think a lot of people are here because other people made big mistakes. Right? Now a lot of people are trying things out. Is that, is that fair? Don't nod. Is that fair? I do not take seriously all the church growth that's happened in the last year and a half. Serious. I learned the lesson, man, we can hurt people. But I can't make you respond well to leader hurt. I can try to help. I can try to be humble. But you need to find the way with Jesus. And guess what? Jesus was absolutely wounded by other leaders in his life. They couldn't even stay awake through the last prayer meeting before he got arrested. And then they ran away and abandoned him right after saying they never would. And then the first thing he does when he comes back to, from the dead is starts hunting them down to reaffirm his love for them. He is so good. He made Peter a fish breakfast, which is naturally disgusting, but they loved it. Right after Peter swore a death oath over himself that he did not know Jesus right before Jesus died. And Jesus hunts him down to feed him so he can help us in our hurts. 
whether it's parent hurt, government hurt, business hurt, church hurt, this will decide how your life goes, how you respond to these things. And a servant takes the humble road and says, I am not above being hurt by people under the sovereignty of God. Help me, Jesus. I am not too good to be betrayed or wounded by people I trusted. Help me, Jesus. Serve God with your gendered God expression. That, that is one of the worst sentences ever. But what I mean by that is if you'll let me go back into Genesis for a second, one of the first things we learn about these dominion-making creatures is that they're male and female. And this is before the fall. God's idea was to express himself to the creation through a male and a female working together to make the world a better place. And one of the things about our culture right now is that we're so obsessed with either nullifying the difference or trying to appropriate the difference in order to gain dominion over creation when God's way is just really like, be who I made you. It's a good deal. To be a woman is a wonderful deal. It's very painful sometimes, but it's a huge blessing. Run with it. There is nothing God has called you to where you need to be the other one to be who God's called you. Dudes, it's great to be a guy. It's wonderful to be male. I know I've just created the greatest, I've just done the greatest Canadian sin ever. It's great to be a man. Don't be afraid. Don't be arrogant. Don't simp like Ken. Don't pimp like Andrew Tate. These are not options for you. Just be God's man wherever you go. With peace and faith. And you'll be fine. But it's a good deal. Take the deal. And get out of the game. There are people killing themselves to be in the game. It's a bad game. Jesus killed the game. Don't play the game. Number six, getting a bit more serious. Consider what you lose to stay loyal to Jesus. You don't want to be deciding what your boundaries are for loyalty to Jesus while your boss is asking you to do things that are against Christ. You want to have a good sense beforehand where your boundaries are. And everywhere you go, you're going to be able to ask, is this going to break my conscience? Is this disloyal? Pray and think it through now. Part of why I'm saying this is that interesting mug shots are flooding the internet right now. And uh, we're just not at a time where, where everything's light and fluffy. And things are going to get more serious for us. And it was just so normal to go to jail for Jesus for the first hundred years. All the apostles had mugshots. That's all I'm trying to say. All the apostles have mugshots for Jesus. And don't we, it's not our call to do what uh, pastors usually go to jail for nowadays, which is stealing the money or monkeying around with people. That's not the right kind of mugshots. But I do think that as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, we are going to become more aware of how in the first century 
following Jesus meant saying yes to all kinds of potential rejections and imprisonments and tortures and all kinds of things. And I'm not saying that to make us afraid. We were afraid before I ever said that. I think we'll be less afraid when we get into reality and just trust Jesus with the future. Which brings me to number seven. We should probably be willing to die for Jesus. They used to think that was part of the game, like the real one. Hey, you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to die. And there are people in the world where this is part of their life. In Africa, in North Korea, there are people where they know if I'm going to start following Jesus, this means I'm probably going to not, I'm not going to die of cancer. And just because I'm saying everything anyways, it pains me to know that there are people willing to die for their faith in maid if the church isn't ready to give it all to Jesus as slaves and servants of the kingdom of God. There are Canadians willing to die for what they believe in. They're doing it at about the rate of about 10,000 a year, 30 people a day, in their confidence that when someone from the government kills them, they go to something better than what they have when 99.99% are going to end up in the lake of fire and the people who do it will join them at some point. And I think one of the things that's missing from us is that I know it is in my heart is like we're supposed to be all in for Jesus. And maybe we aren't there. So that's me wrapping it up. I'll invite the worship team to come forward. Father God, I just give you this this reality of our Christ, who is the best thing ever, and how you've bought us Jesus, which includes having the right to decide how long we live and what we're called to gain and lose in this life. And Lord, I submit to you every kind of idea for leadership we have in the church, whether sometimes we imitate big business and sometimes we imitate big politics, sometimes we imitate the coaching world, and I just submit it all to you, and I pray that you would refine us into a kingdom culture of servants who are made to lead. I pray, Lord, you deal with my pride and our pride, and I pray that you would just help us to keep getting deeper into the lowliness that invites the unlimited power of God. I pray you'd give us that healthy and holy obsession with the glory of God that makes the glory of man so worthless to us. And I just really pray that we would really please you with how we do life together. In Jesus' name, amen.